So Genesis 22, 1 through 14, and if you don't have your Bible, no problem. You can follow along on the screen behind me as well. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to, Abraham, said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose. And he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his son, on Isaac, his son. And he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the, and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The way I want to approach um, meditating on this name with you is by first just diving into really the, the meaning of the name itself, the etymology of it, and then we'll get into the narrative and see more through the, the lens of Abraham and this story, how God reveals himself as and is Yahweh Yireh. So this name, Yahweh Yireh, means in its simplest form, the God who sees and provides for your needs. The God who sees and provides for your needs. The word Yireh, the second in the compound of God's name there, um, in the, elsewhere in the Old Testament is translated in a couple of different ways primarily as to see um, in, in some instances, but also as to provide. And what I want you to hear right now is those ideas aren't unrelated. It isn't as if they really don't have a connection or a correlation. They do, and in fact, both of them weigh into the meaning here of God's name. In the English, we translate this word, yaira, as provision or provide. And provision is a compound of two Latin words, Pro, which means beforehand or forward, and vision, which means to see. So literally, to see beforehand is what provision means. And then provide is just the verb form, the action form of provision. So it's the action of God seeing beforehand what is needed 
and providing in light of that. Now, it's important that we also understand at the front end of this compound name that Yahweh is distinct from other names, many names that are used in the Bible for God, and it's distinct from those other names. So, for example, Elohim is another name used for God in the Old Testament, and it's used as a more general name of God in relationship to all of the nations of the earth. Whereas Yahweh refers to the nature of God to want to reveal himself in particular to those people he's in covenant relationship with. It's a special kind of name for a special people that God is particularly wanting to reveal himself relationally to. Now to dive a little bit deeper into this name, because he's Yahweh, Yaira, emphasis upon the latter part of this name, Yaira again for a moment, we can count on God to provide. That's what this means. He'll provide the home that meets the practical needs of your family, the job that will meet your financial needs, the community that you need for your soul, the confessor that you need, that person that you can truly entrust with your sin and, and accountability, the help that you may need for an addiction, the resources you may need to deal with depression in your life, the guidance that you need to discern between a good choice and a better choice, the courage you, that you may need to risk rejection, and the list goes on and on. God is a good provider in all of these ways. But because he's Yahweh, Yaira, now emphasis upon that first part of the name, the God who reveals himself for the sake of expanding relationship, understand that this name is about more than God just being a practical provider, more than just God being a vending machine of sorts that contains your needs that will dispense of them at the appropriate time. That's way too impersonal of an understanding of this name. Provision serves at least a twofold purpose. Yes, not only meet, yes, meeting your practical needs, but not only meeting your practical needs. That God would provide for you is also a way that he intends to deepen relational intimacy with you. And the context for where that happens is in the context of faith. There are certain needs that God provides for you on a daily basis regularly that you don't even know he's providing. He's doing it all the time. You take it for granted. I take it for granted very easily. But there are other needs that we have that God provides precisely in the context of walking by faith in order to deepen our relational intimacy with him. This is one of those instances, as we're going to see in a moment, with Abraham. Now, I want to clarify something with you at this point, just so that there's no mistaking. The nature and the character of God never changes, okay? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your faith doesn't activate God's character as being true about him. But as we'll see, our faith, as is with the case with Abraham, administers the reality of who God already is in his nature and character to being your true experience of him on a relationship level. Okay, hopefully that will become clear as we continue to go in terms of what I mean by that. Here's a simple analogy to hope, hopefully help make this even clearer. A person that you know may have a reputation as being a kind and generous person. However, unless you turn to that person in a time of need, unless you experience that generosity on a personal level, that truth, as true as it may be, remains in reputation only. It isn't something that you've experienced relationally and understand about that person firsthand. See, God wants you and I to experience him relationally, not just to know his reputation, but you're only going to discover that in the context of faith. 
So now we're going to take a look at the story of Abraham and how that reality and that truth unfolds in his own journey. In Genesis 22 here, the story we just read, God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable, doesn't he? I mean, at the very least, this had to have been incredibly perplexing for God to have come to Abraham and instructed him in this way. I mean, think of all the apparent contradictions that Abraham would have had to wrestle with here. There's the apparent theological contradictions of thou shalt not kill. There's the emotional contradiction in his heart he would have wrestled with. This is the son whom he loves that God is asking him to sacrifice. There's the relational contradiction. How in any way is this going to help his relationship with his wife Sarah, not to mention Isaac, to flourish if he follows through in obedience? And then there's the apparent contradiction to the promise that God had made to make a great nation of Abraham through this son that God was calling him to sacrifice. You and I have the benefit of hindsight here in reading this story. And even still, if you're honest, as I have been with myself this week, we still find this story incredibly uncomfortable. How could God ask this of someone? I mean, this is, this is the God who gives life and cherishes life. This is the God who takes it so seriously that he demands life for life in Genesis chapter 9. This is the God who is supposed to be for you and I. This is the God who's supposed to be working for our good. Yet here's the thing. Most of us, even if a bit reluctant, reluctantly, can accept this story because you and I know the outcome. We get to read to its end. And that starts to make a little bit more sense of it. And not only that, but we also know what God himself was willing to do later with his own son. But Abraham did not have the benefit of hindsight, the benefit of understanding and knowing these things. His head must have just been spinning. His heart must have been torn in a thousand different directions. If anyone would have understood what it was to have wrestled with God's will, like Jesus did in the garden when he sweat drops of blood, it would have been Abraham, would it not? One of the things I want to say as a brief aside here is this is a legitimate emotional response that undoubtedly Abraham would have had to this command. Right? And if any place in Scripture gives us permission to wrestle with the character and nature of God and sometimes his will and what he calls us to, it would be someplace like the Psalms. We see it all of the time. Wrestling with who God is and his will in our life, that's legitimate. But let me also say, don't let wrestling, quote-unquote, and struggle become a cover for disobedience. It's a fine line to walk between genuinely wrestling and struggling with who God is on the one hand, but having a heart that's inclined to say, yes, Lord, and hiding behind struggle and wrestling as an excuse for disobedience. So just seek to be discerning of the difference there in your own life. We know Abraham must have wrestled here with this. The interesting thing is the focus really isn't upon that as much as that was true. The focus is on the thing that's most important at the end of the day, which is that Abraham was obedient to this. That's all we see portrayed throughout this whole passage. It's incredible. In fact, I would go to the extent to say, to me, this is the most remarkable act of obedience in all of Scripture, the cross notwithstanding. I can't think of one that would have taken more trust in God to follow through with. But we have to see this obedience, I think, in perspective. We have to step back and see Abraham's obedience here in light of the journey of faith that he's been on to this point. See, Abraham was an old man here. If you're familiar with the context of this story within the, 
broader context of Genesis's account of his life, this, we're three chapters away from learning about his death, right? He's an old man here. This is the culminating event in a long string of tests of his faith. Already, we've seen God early on in his story with Abraham instruct him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. That was his home. That was what was known. That was what was familiar and comfortable for an unknown promised land. And remarkably, he does. He went. That's faith. We also see that God tells Abraham he would make a great nation of him, as numerous as the stars in the sky. But he says this to Abraham when he and his wife Sarah were old. They were in their 90s. They were barren. They had tried to have kids. Yet, we're told Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, my hypothetical, speculative question of the day, or more speculative answer that I'll give to the question is, would Abraham have obeyed God out of the gates with this command in his first interaction when he first met this God? I think it's not so far-fetched for me to say, probably not. And that's no discredit to Abraham, it's more a credit to God knowing how to work with his people to build up their faith to get them to this place. So I think there are two implications for the timing of God asking this of Abraham. Number one, God develops our faith over time, not overnight. And secondly, whatever instruction, whatever test, whatever command lies before you right now from God, he's prepared you for that. You are able to walk in obedience to that which you are aware of God has called you to right now. Because God knows what he's doing. He builds up your faith over time. And you are able, by his strength, to walk in faithfulness to that which he's called you. Now, there are other events and instructions along the way that we read about in Scripture that we inevitably know took place outside of Scripture in Abraham's life, but there were none so profound and required so much faith as this. Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him. So this is all kind of building to a key point that I want to make here, which is this. Understand that the greater the command... God has for us in terms of the faith that's required, the greater the opportunity there is to experience him relationally. This is what he's doing in Abraham's life. He's giving him an opportunity to experience him in a deeper way relationally than he ever has before. Listen, any of us, any believer can intellectually assent to God as being a provider. But we don't know God as Yahweh, Yaira, until we face the impossible and we walk forward in it by faith. No one knew that more intimately than Abraham because he stepped into a situation in which he was made utterly dependent upon God to provide, to somehow preserve his beloved son, to somehow fulfill a great nation through Abraham, despite Abraham's commitment to obedience here, to sacrifice his son Isaac, which would have seemed to eliminate those prospects. So it would be fascinating to know what was going on in Abraham's heart and mind in terms of how he was seeking to reconcile all these things. You know what? It's interesting. We actually are given that insight in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, where the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 tells us something that we don't know from the Old Testament. And he says this. He says, Abraham considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's what's what was going on in Abraham's heart and mind. It's fascinating to learn that because here's what that means. It means that Abraham didn't even have it in mind that God might spare him from following through on this instruction. 
Like, how often, for those of you who've grown up in the church and heard this story, have you encountered something in life where you equate your situation to Abraham and think, if I'm just, if I just demonstrate to God my willingness to give this thing up, that I love him more than this, then maybe God will give it back, right? Abraham didn't have an Abraham. He didn't have an Abraham and Isaac story to think that way. Which is incredible because of what it means is he was so committed to obedience that he was only considering the ways in which God would be faithful to fulfill his promise after Abraham followed through, after he actually sacrificed his son. Which was evidenced by this insight we're given in Hebrews 11. That Abraham's best guess at how God was going to be faithful to his promise was by raising his son from the dead. It's incredible faith. But it's the kind of faith that we know has been built over time and rests in God's perfect track record of faithfulness to that point. It's a kind of faith that's founded in relationship. And so here we are, the culmination of this story. Abraham's hand, knife in hand, raised above his son Isaac, ready to follow through, to drop that knife, undoubtedly filled with turbulence and anguish in his heart as he planned to do so. And God in that moment stays his hand. And Abraham lifts his eyes from his son Isaac, and he sees a ram that God has provided to replace Isaac on the altar. God provides. Yahweh Yireh. He provides in the 11th hour, yes, the last minute, but he provides. You see, God knew from the beginning what it was that Abraham needed, both the practical provision he would need in this instance, but also the test that would bring the greatest intimacy that Abraham had known in his walk with God. God provided what was needed at the precise moment that it was needed, both for Abraham's spiritual growth or spiritual needs and practical needs. Author and pastor Tony Evans does a, a, a wonderful job, I think, um, elaborating imaginatively on what was taking place behind the scenes in this account that we're not told of explicitly in Scripture, but that I think is implicit. He says this. Abraham didn't hear the ram trying to get out of the thicket until he finished obeying God's command. In fact, while Abraham was going through his trial and climbing up the mountain on the one side, God had Abraham solution the ram coming up the mountain on the other side, and he was going to make a match at precisely the right time. Now, to kind of bring that to your contemporary situation and maybe something that you could relate to that's going on in your life, what this looks like God as Yahweh Yireh might be as you're pursuing a job, let's say, by faith, pursuing various leads, but they all seem to be falling flat and coming up empty. God knows and is orchestrating there is somewhere, someone somewhere else leaving another job that you are the perfect applicant to fulfill. Or maybe you find yourself brokenhearted over one failed relationship after another, but you continue to pursue God by faith and as you're so doing, he is preparing someone somewhere else for you, maybe somebody that he's moving across the country to the town that you're living in, all unbeknownst to you. Or maybe as you near the threshold of your ability to cope with some sort of crippling pain or spiritual weakness in your life, help lies just around the next corner at the precise moment that you are going to need it, both spiritually and practically. But you've got to persevere and not take the easy way out, even if that perseverance looks like the faith of a mustard seed, and God's provision will meet you precisely at the right time and in the way that you need. 
This is what it means that God is Yahweh, Yaira. But I want you to see, I want you to see this clearly now. And that is specifically where Abraham encounters God's provision. It was on the path of faith and a willingness to sacrifice sacrifice at the point that it hurt the most that Abraham came to know God in this life-changing way as Yahweh, Yaira. In fact, I think I would go as far to say it's safe to say that if Abraham never, uh, if Abraham um, had not proceeded by faith throughout this whole journey, that he would never have met the provision that God had intended for him. If he had rejected the command from the beginning, if he had gotten partway up the mountain but decided to turn back, even if at the point of having to take the knife in hand, he decided, you know what, can't do it, then he would not have encountered Yahweh Yaira in the life-changing way that he did because he would have not have followed through with what faith truly looks like. Obedience to God is comprised of many little baby steps along the way, but there's always this pivotal point at which true follow-through occurs, a point at which we truly cross the threshold from what's possible for you and I into what's only possible for God to do. We see this in Abraham's life. Early on in Genesis 22, whether you caught it or not, there's a lot of these verbs that are used that really are expressions of his faith in response to what God's asked. We read things like this, that he rose, this is all in response after God has commanded this of him, he rose early, he saddled his donkey, he took his young men and Isaac, he split wood, he arose again, and he went to the place that God had told him. These are all baby steps in the direction of obedience, yet many can walk 99% of the pathway of obedience and then turn back, but it's the follow through to the end where we encounter God relationally. And the kind of faith that leads to follow-through is not just one that believes theoretically God is able to provide. It's a faith that believes that the one who can provide is better than all that the world can offer. What that looked like for Abraham was a faith that believed God was so good and so holy and so powerful and so great that he could raise Isaac from the dead. But that even if he didn't, he would somehow still be right, and that would somehow still be best. Only that kind of faith, only that kind of trust in our God leads to follow through all the way, and only a faith that follows through will encounter God relationally as Abraham did here. And again, let me say it one more time just to clarify, the nature and character of God never changes. God was still holy. He was already holy. He was already good. He was already great in that moment where Abraham had that choice to make that was before him. Our faith doesn't activate those things as all of a sudden becoming true about God, but our faith administers that reality to begin your personal experience of who God already is, not just theoretically, but on a relational level. If you're having a hard time or don't believe this from your own personal experience, then believe it from those who've gone before. This isn't just a story about something that happened to somebody else, Abraham. It's a story God preserved for you and I so that his reputation as Yahweh Yireh would precede him and so that you and I would also go to him in faith and trust him and get to experience his loving and perfect provision in your life. 
Now, of course, there's some profound symbolism here in this story, too, and I'd be remiss not to point it out, especially as we make this transition into thinking about Christmas and the application of this name, Yahweh Yireh, to find its fulfillment in Jesus. See, God, in this story with Abraham, was not only revealing something in the immediate sense to him, but was also foreshadowing what he would one day do to provide for your and my greatest need. In a sense, you and I are Isaac here. And in a sense, the 11th hour exchange was not an animal which would never be able to atone for our sins, but it was God's own son. And God did not stay his hand from the death blow upon his son. As we know from John 3.16 and elsewhere, God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die on a cross for you and I so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And also I want to say here, don't make the mistake that God was stoic through this sacrifice, stoic through the sacrifice of his own son, that somehow this was a cold transactional event that was intended to just purchase our get-out-of-jail-free card. It may have been free for you and I, but it was not free for God. Everything that we've considered, everything that we've tried to do to enter into what was going on in Abraham's heart, as a father who loved his son, who experienced anguish and pain, and a broken heart over this instruction God had given, don't assume that God did not experience these exact same things when he allowed his son to go to the cross to die for us. You ever wonder why Abraham, after this event, is thereto forward referred to as the friend of God? It's because Abraham, perhaps uniquely in all of history, was able to relate to what God would have to go through in giving his own son. And what is a friend but somebody who can empathize with us? someone who can stand with us in our loneliness because they understand to some degree what it is that we've gone through. So make no mistake, God experienced the anguish of a father in giving his own son to be slaughtered, and he endured that pain out of his love for the world, for you and I. In Advent each year, we seek to try and refocus on uh, what it means for Jesus to be a gift, a greater gift than anything you're going to find under your Christmas tree this year. And as we consider this name in particular, Yahweh Yaira, the God who sees and provides, certainly we worship because in Christ, God has provided for our greatest need. But maybe the added layer of gratitude this year will come from considering not just the benefit that this is to us, but the cost that this came at to God, the Father. Cost that Abraham came to understand only by an obedience that was fueled by faith and a faith that followed through. God has provided for you and for me, um, and will continue to many things that we need on a practical level, relationships, friendships, financial provision, various forms of helps, but God's love for us isn't captured perfectly in any of those things like it is in the provision of his son as the lamb who was slain in your place. Because the gift of his son demonstrates not only his ability to provide for you, but also the extent to which he's willing to go to provide for you. That is why God can be trusted. When you understand this, then you understand how generous of a provider that it is that we have in our God. For as the Apostle Paul says in places like Romans 8, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In a moment, we'll celebrate communion together and we'll consider the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus for our sins. And that in and of itself 
is worthy of our contemplation. But as you take communion today, also consider the anguish of the Father, who did not stay his hand from allowing that death blow to fall upon his son. And also remember, God didn't ask of Abraham something that he himself was not willing to do. In fact, he spared Abraham from having to endure that loss, and he absorbed that pain and that anguish in himself instead so that you and I and Abraham didn't have to deal with that. If you've not taken communion here at Terra Nova before, it's, we're doing a little bit differently. Our COVID-friendly version are those little packets of the wafer and the juice that you may have saw on the table in the back when you came in, and you can feel free to grab one now if you missed that. Um, and <clears throat> we want to encourage you to please feel free as you contemplate these things to take your time and go at your own pace over the course of the next song. And I also want to say, too, that communion, the Lord's Supper, is, um, is for anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's in part what that means. It means the faith to believe that God is not only able to provide, but that God went to the furthest extent to provide for our greatest need. The forgiveness of our sins, the redemption of us, body and soul, and to restore that relationship that we were always intended to have with him. If you believe this, then rejoice in that. And you are welcome to participate in communion and to embrace not only the love of the Son for you demonstrated in communion, but also the love of the Father and what he was willing to endure as well for you. So may the Lord bless you guys and may you experience God as Yahweh, Yaira, in a deeper way this Advent season as you follow him by faith, a faith that follows through.